Gracious and loving God, thank you for this new day and for this opportunity we have to study your holy word. We pray that you'd be with us in our listening, our speaking, and that we would both comprehend and be changed in the right ways today by what we take in and receive. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not found even among pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife and you are arrogant. Should you not rather have mourned so that he who has done this would have been removed from among you? For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man who has done such a thing. When you are assembled and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not a good thing. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch, as you really are unleavened. For our Paschal Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside is it not those who are inside that you are to judge? God will judge those outside. Drive out the wicked person from among you. When any of you has a grievance against another, do you dare to take it to court before the unrighteous instead of taking it before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels to say nothing of ordinary matters? If you have ordinary cases, then, do you appoint as judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to decide between one believer and another, but a believer goes to court against a believer and before unbelievers at that? In fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, and believers at that. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. 
All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. All right, thank you. So, um... 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 is what Evie just read. And for those of you who are only accustomed to Sunday lectionary readings, um, it can be jarring to hear Paul speak the way he is speaking as he dives into the specifics of that which is happening in the Corinthian community. I think we just need to start by understanding the broader context of this letter and this community. Um, so at the heart of this chapter is a call to holiness uh, rooted in a deeper understanding of collective identity, right? Because the Corinthians don't really have a strong sense of who they are. So whenever Paul was trying to tell them, hey, you are one body, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you are members of Christ. Paul is telling them this because their moral life is to be the result of them knowing who they are, right? Their poor behavior um, uh, from Paul's standpoint stems from the fact that they don't quite understand who they are or what their call is. Um, you know, Paul does emphasize here um, sex and sexual purity, and uh, I imagine that um, there are as many ideas on what an appropriate um, sexual ethic uh, is uh, as there are people in this Bible study today. Um, I've done this long enough to know that uh, not everybody uh, sees this exactly the same way. But what I think all Christians can and must agree on is that there should be some very clear and strong sexual ethic that is different from the ethic of the world, right? That somehow, um, however Christians understand sex, it should be rooted in an understanding of holiness and identity and be well thought out and flow from our reading of scripture. So the Greek word translated fornication, for instance, is porneia. And if that word sounds familiar, it's where we get the English word pornography. And, and I think all Christians would 
condemn uh, pornography, for instance, in its current manifestation, where uh, it is often degrading, uh, it's addictive, it uh, leads away from intimate, vulnerable relationships, and uh, it is really tied to human trafficking, right? People who often are uh, exploited in such films are exploited, right? So um, I think that what makes Paul uh, hard for many people is the jarring kind of assertive nature in which he tackles these concepts so head on because in our tradition, now there are some churches that really like to talk about sex and, and there's conservative churches that talk a lot about sex and espouse a very conservative sexual ethic. And there are progressive churches that talk a lot about sex and they have a different sexual ethic. They're more concerned um, uh, with articulating kind of a counter position uh, to the traditional conservative articulation of how sex is to be understood. You know, if you've listened to my sermons uh, for the last six years, you can count on zero fingers the number of sermons I've preached on sex. And um and but just because that's not a, a common thing that that we do in the Episcopal Church for good or for ill. And so whenever we hear Paul writing um such sharp and clear words about the sexual ethic he is calling his community to, uh it, it makes us think about our own. Uh and how is this relevant for the church today, and how are we to talk about sex, and how are we to talk about uh, the call to holiness, and to be both generous and kind, and um, and um, open-hearted uh, in terms of how we consider the di the different perspectives that that people may have, but uh, at the same time uh, to take seriously Paul's. Uh, understanding that we are called to be, as he says, a new batch, right? That that there is a newness that is to be part of our life here. Uh, I think obviously um, it, it just goes without saying that um, so many people have been wounded by the church, in particular around sex, and so it would always be an inappropriate use of this passage. Always, always, always. Um, to use it to belittle someone or disparage someone. And we always, as a church, have to repent of the way that passages like this have been used um, to wound others. Um, um, as First uh, Peter says, you know, judgment begins with the household of God. And every time I read that, I'm reminded that uh, the place where I need to start in reading a passage like this is with myself. You know, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for our community uh, in today's world? And so we'll have some conversation about that. But to go back to 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul begins by saying it is actually reported, and uh, we can assume that Chloe's people uh, are feeding Paul this information. You remember from 1 Corinthians 1, it's Chloe's people that are telling Paul that all these factions have arisen. And the report Paul receives is that a man is living with his father's wife. So this is probably going to be his stepmother. So you have uh, someone in the church who's having sexual relationships with his stepmother. Uh, presumably his dad is still alive as well. 
And I think we just need to name that even in our context today, this is very scandalous behavior. I mean, I'm a pastor. I, I've never heard of this happening in my church or anyone else's church uh, of my colleagues. And if this were happening and everyone knew about it and everyone at St. Michael's were talking about it, uh, this would be an issue that I, as the pastor, would have to deal with in, in some sense. And so um, Paul is very upset about this behavior, but not only is Paul upset about this behavior, but he is also upset that no one seems to be concerned, right? So on the one hand, Paul's mad about the behavior itself, but on the other hand, he's upset that people are arrogant and they're boasting. And presumably, because this is going to come up later with uh, Paul addressing the freedom people have in Christ and their choice to eat or not eat meat offered to idols, uh, there's boasting, right? In verse six, your boasting is not a good thing. And what a lot of scholars think is that because Paul has been preaching a gospel of freedom, that they have misunderstood this freedom as basically freedom to do whatever they want. And so whenever he quotes that slogan, uh, the body is meant for food and food for the body, um, it, that slogan um, could have been applied to one's sexual ethic, right? We feel urges, so we have to satiate any urge. And so uh, if, you know, uh, my stepmother and, and I want to, um, have have sex and, and we both want to, why not do it? Let's boast in our freedom. And, and Paul says, your boasting is not a good thing. And so Paul is concerned that no one else seems to be concerned. And he comes off as being very strong. And we're not really used to such strong leadership, such strong condemning of people. But just to give you a modern example, right? Let's say hypothetically that we had a, and I'm just obviously making this example up, but let's say we had a disabled person at the church. And um, okay, so let's assume that people were making fun of him for his disability. And uh, there were a lot of people at the church making fun of this individual for whatever his disability was. And then let's say you have the vestry, right? The vestry are the leaders of the church. And let's say the vestry is kind of laughing at all the jokes and maybe even participating in the jokes. And maybe some of them are, you know, um, leading the, the taunts. Now, obviously this would never happen, but that would be a pretty offensive thing. It, it, it's offensive to make fun of someone with a disability but it's also offensive and concerning that no one seems to be concerned and that no one says anything. And so then let's just say you're a fly on the wall and I go into a vestry meeting and you see a different side of Pastor John. And I tell them um, that I am disappointed in their failure to stand up for this person with a disability, that they're acting uh, in this way uh, brings uh, a discrediting reputation upon the church and that uh, they better shape up or ship out. I mean, let's just say I say some version of that. My guess is that assuming I didn't shame them, but that I was firm and clear, you'd have more respect for me as a leader and not less respect, that, that someone has to stand up for what's right here and call the leaders to be leaders. 
And I think that's kind of what Paul's doing. You know, there's this scandalous behavior in the community and everyone's laughing it off and writing it off. And so Paul writes him a letter and says, listen, guys, gals, y'all got to do something about this. And so what he says is, uh, you know, you got to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Um, this is figurative language for excommunication. Um, there's no weird ritual um, where they hand people over to Satan. This is just saying, hey, kick this guy out of the church and maybe removing him from the community will lead to repentance. I mean, that's basically the idea. And we might have some conversation together around, is there ever grounds for excommunication, for removing someone from the church, hoping that they will repent? Um, it's not a practice as common uh, in our tradition as it may be in some other traditions. And whenever it happens, it, it can feel harsh, but that's kind of what Paul's saying. Hey, this is not healthy behavior um, in the same way that your body has an immune system. And if there's a virus kind of kicks out the virus, Paul's saying, hey, this guy's a virus. Get him out of here. And if he can clean up, welcome him back. But don't let this behavior continue. And then he says, you know, a little yeast leavens the whole dough. And, and yeast is a metaphor for sin. It, it works its way through uh, the batch. And, and so basically, again, you know, Paul is saying, this guy's a cancer. Don't let it spread because you're called to be a new batch. You're called to be healthy. You're called to be holy. Um, now that could lead to a misunderstanding that Paul doesn't want them near any poor behavior at all. And he has to clarify that. He says, I'm talking only about people in the church. You know, if someone is behaving really poorly in the church, you got to do something. But I'm not concerned with all the people in the world. I just assume they're all behaving poorly. And you don't need to stay away from them because A, that would cut off your witness. You can't evangelize to people if you're not going near them. But B, you'd have to leave the world altogether, right? The world's a crooked place. And so um, Paul's theology here is that the church is to be holy, the church is to be different, and that if there is really poor behavior, and, and again, I think we can agree that this is poor behavior, right? A guy sleeping with his stepmother in the congregation um, and everyone kind of talking about it and gossiping about it. If this behavior is going on, you got to deal with it. But as for your relationships out in the world, you know, um, you don't need to run away from every person you think might be sinful. And then Paul shifts to another example of poor behavior, right? So there's, there's different examples of behavior that flows from a failure to understand one's identity in Christ. And so at first he deals with this very specific issue of sexual immorality with the man and his stepmother, coupled with their failure to do anything about it. Now uh, he is addressing the fact that they're all suing each other. And again, this is scandalous behavior. I mean, if Jackie and Bunny and Annie were all, you know, wrapped up suing each other and and fighting and every coffee hour, you know, they got their attorneys and they're yelling at each other. 
you you better believe I'd intervene and say, take your business elsewhere. You you know, you can't sue each other at this church. Like if there has to be a lawsuit, then we can come to my office and pray about that together. But you guys clean it up here. Uh, and, and Paul, again, is concerned about the witness of the church and them understanding their true identity. He says, don't you know that saints will judge the world? Um, Jesus says something similar to his disciples about how they're going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel at the renewal of all things. Uh, that's probably metaphorical language that's meant to point to the fact that we will reign with Christ. Um, you know, the Bible always talks about uh, Christ is the king and how the saints will reign with Christ. And that reigning with Christ is a restoration of the dominion that Adam and Eve were given over the creation. And so whatever that means to reign, to, to have our rule restored, uh, that's its own topic of conversation. But, you know, what Paul is telling them is God is preparing you for some authority. God is preparing you for eternal responsibility. And, and so if you're going to take that on, you got to know how to settle an argument with one another. I mean, it, it's kind of a, a, a comic and tragic thing. I mean, here they are, you know, they just imagine that I'm in line to be the king of England. And it's not just a symbolic role. I mean, I'm really going to be a monarch. I'm going to have to settle hard cases and, you know, do this, that, the other but I don't know how to pick out socks. You'd say, well, that's a problem. You know, if you can't decide on what socks to wear, how are you going to make much bigger decisions with respect to governing an entire nation? And, and Paul is kind of saying that to them with respect to the lawsuits um, that they're filing against one another. And then Paul asks, you know, why not just be wronged? Why not let yourself be defrauded because again, Paul is inviting them to understand the message about the cross, to go back to chapter one. Jesus was wronged. Jesus was defrauded. Paul is inviting them to embrace that aspect of their faith. But of course, they're doing the opposite. They're doing the wronging. They're doing the defrauding. Whenever I think about this uh, set of chapters and the issues Paul is dealing with, I think about uh, the parable of the sower, where some seed fell in good soil, uh, some, um, you know, grew up quickly but died because it had no root. Some got choked amongst the thorns. Because Paul was a church planter, he planted the seed of the church at Corinth, but moved on probably too quickly. You know, he didn't stick around long enough to make sure that this community um, grew up in the good soil of teaching and ethics and all sorts of stuff. I mean, he even says, I planted and then, you know, Apollos came along and watered. Basically, I just kind of got this thing going and I left. And, you know, one reads this letter and thinks, well, maybe Paul left too quickly. Because as you read the issues he's dealing with, with the factions and the poor behavior at the Eucharist and the sexual immorality and the lawsuits. I mean, look, we have some shenanigans that happen at St. Michael's, but nothing close to this. I've never seen anything like it. And these are uh, Greek converts. And so they didn't grow up in Judaism. They don't know the Ten Commandments by heart. And so they're kind of taking their cue 
on how to live from the Greek pagan world, they're marrying that with Paul's message of the freedom they have in Christ. And it's almost like Paul has to do a big timeout, like a big autocorrect of like, okay, I, I probably should have given y'all more rules. Y'all needed more laws up front. You know, so Paul's message to those who were circumcised and trying to keep the law was basically, hey, those rules aren't going to save you. You're free. Well, it's almost like Paul's dealing with the opposite problem in Corinth. These people have never had rules, and they're now using the message of freedom in Christ to justify um, them acting on every impulse they have. And so notice how in verse 12, Paul quotes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. And Paul's going to continue on with this theme next week whenever he talks about eating idol meat. But basically he says, okay, like, even though there's no law I am giving you, you got to ask the question, is what you're doing beneficial relative to being a member of the body of Christ? Is what you're doing beneficial uh, as you prepare to reign with Christ? Is what you're doing beneficial as you seek to unite yourself with Christ? And the answer very quickly becomes apparent, no. I mean, these these guys and gals are just a mess. And, you know, you, you got to think that Chloe's people who are feeding Paul all this information you know, ran as fast as they could to find Paul to tell them all the things that were happening here. Um, I, I think the final thing, I'll, I'll offer two final points and we'll go into conversation. Number one, it's going to become very clear in next week's class that Paul is expecting the imminent return of Christ. Okay, so we don't really live our life expecting Christ to return any moment now. Paul did. And so there's much more urgency that they clean up their act ASAP that are going to be present in his teaching. The second thing I want to say is um, that verse, verse 20, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. That call to glorify God in our body is both a call to the individual and to the community. And so um, first you're bought with a price, you know, Part of Paul's theology is you are not your own. And that is itself scandalous to the, the modern ear, right? We, we like being our own person. We like having our rights. We like having um, this is me and my life and I'll do what I want. And, and Paul says, you know, not so fast. That's, that's not how this thing works. Um, you are redeemed. You were bought back. Uh, you belong to another. And freedom is about uniting yourself in ever-increasing depths to that other that we know as Christ. So you're not your own. Therefore, glorify God in your body, both your individual body, but also your collective body. So I've got a body. Uh, you've got a body. Our bodies are not the same. And so we have to think about how to glorify God in this body. But St. Michael's is a collective body, and the call is to the collective. You know, we together are to glorify God in our body, which is why, um, you know, our faith in Christ is personal, but it's not private. You know, no one, no one gets to have their own private life in the church. We don't, you know, as Paul said, get to sleep with our stepmother. 
and expect that to be our business and no one else's business because we have this collective call. We're accountable to each other. And so I think part of what Paul's trying to do is to wake everyone up to that, you know, and and his very um um his very urgent Pauline way.